Good morning, Elevation family. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Kristen Taylor and I'm part of the teaching team here at Elevation. Today I have the opportunity to take us through the second chapter of Titus and the second installment of our series on how to live a public faith. And I'm actually really excited to tackle this chapter with you because as you heard in the scripture reading right before this, there are a couple tricky verses in there where Paul tells slaves to be subject to their masters and women to be subject to their husbands. Verses like this in the Bible are so often used to cause violence against women and our black brothers and sisters. Case in point, in this fantastic book, which I highly recommend, called Unsettling Truths by Mark Charles, who is a Navajo Christian writer and speaker, he shares a story about someone who once told him, if slavery were legal, I'd probably have two myself. That would not have made me a racist. I have a big heart, but the law is the law. I would have slaves, I just wouldn't treat them harshly because after all, we're all humans. Last time I checked, slavery was acceptable back in the Bible days, so if slavery was cool with God, it's cool with me. This kind of ignorant and illiterate reading of the Bible has been the source of justification for centuries of some of society's worst evils, and it has to stop. If you're like me, when I hit verses like this, um, it causes so much dissonance for me. And sometimes I'll feel this temptation to just skip past these verses or turn away. Um, I don't know what to do with them. <clears throat> and for many people, it's verses like this in Titus 2 that have led them to question the authority of the Bible completely and they just throw the whole thing out. Well, I wanna tackle the mess head on today. I want us to put together some tools that will help us know how to read the Bible literally and with a good understanding and a solid understanding of the context. Let's stop the violent and inappropriate reading of these verses right at their root. And here's the first tool we can use when we're reading the Bible and we come across verses that immediately rankle our chains. The first thing is to understand that while the Bible was written for us, it wasn't written to us. What do I mean by that? I mean that God in all His omnipotence and wisdom sees us right now in this moment of history in Canada and Kitchener-Waterloo, and He has always intended for us to know and understand the message of His radical love and redemption through the person of Jesus. The truth that is captured in the Bible as it reveals God's generous love and as it reveals the story of His Son Jesus and His death and resurrection is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. That truth of that message in the Bible is for us today in this moment in history. But that doesn't mean that the Bible was written to us. When Paul was writing this letter of Titus to the early church in Crete, he had absolutely no conception of modern Canadian culture, our time, our technology, our fashion, our politics, our popular culture. We would be as alien to him then as extraterrestrials would be to us if they landed in Waterloo tomorrow. The only frame of reference Paul had was the ancient Greek and Jewish culture of his day. That's who he was writing to, and that was the cultural context he was referencing. So it's on us to do a little extra work to understand what that original context was so that we can get to the gem of the truth that's in Paul's writing and translate it into our current moment. So let me give you an example. 
This month, my husband Dwayne turned 40. It was a bummer of a birthday because it's his second COVID birthday and there was no real way to celebrate the milestone, this milestone for him. But I put together a virtual bulletin board called a kudo board and I sent it to his coworkers and friends so they could leave him messages. And one of his former coworkers from Laurier wrote him this message. She wrote, happy birthday DT, wishing you the happiest of birthdays. Dare I say, this occasion calls for an orchid. Now, I knew immediately there must be some kind of inside joke here because orchids and birthdays don't necessarily go together. But let's just imagine that this birthday message stands the test of time and 2,000 years from now, a culture we can't even imagine finds it. We can't imagine their technology, their politics, their fashion, the way they organize their communities, their language. But two things remain the same in that culture as they do today, birthdays and orchids. So imagine they find this birthday message and they think, oh, we've been doing birthdays wrong this whole time. We should have been giving everyone an orchid on their birthday. And so they make giving orchids on birthdays a law. Now, have they understood the note? Well, literally, yes, they've understood the words. But have they understood the message in the note? No, how could they? That message is wrapped up in a cultural context and a time that is pretty much inaccessible to them. So they need to do a little extra research to understand what the original message is. That's what we're gonna do today. First, we're gonna understand the original context of Titus and what Paul was, the context that Paul was writing in. Then we're gonna identify in that the gem of truth uh, that can stand the test of time. And we're gonna take that gem of truth lastly, and we're going to translate it into our modern context to see what it can teach us about who God is, who Jesus is, and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I wanna to acknowledge today the help that I've gotten in this work. First, I had the help of our very own Ron Croker, who has his PhD in the classics and is a classic scholar and professor at University of Waterloo. He's an expert in ancient Greek culture, mythology, literature, philosophy, and he helped me better understand the moment in history when Paul was writing. I also had help from my beloved New Testament professor from undergrad named Ken Shank, who is also a prominent New Testament scholar and helped me to understand Titus in the context and in relationship to all of Paul's other letters that he wrote to the early church. And finally, I had the help of Catherine Bushnell, um, who lived in the late 19th, early 20th century and was a brilliant biblical scholar and a passionate advocate for the oppressed. She helps us understand the original meaning of the word to be subject to that Paul uses in Titus and other, ver and other letters of, uh, of the New Testament. So let's start here. Let's start with the setting of Titus. Well, Brandon helped us to understand the setting last week, so I'll just recap what he shared. That Titus was Paul's missionary partner, who Paul left on the Isle of Crete, just off the coast of Greece, to lead a brand new Jesus-following church. So Paul is writing back to Titus to give him instructions on how to lead this church in Crete. Now, Crete had two major ports of trade, which meant it was a major crossroads um, for many different people groups, cultures, and languages. And Paul was very strategic here because he saw that Crete would be a great landing place from which to spread the good news of Jesus to all these different cultures and people. 
Crete was also significant in that it was understood to be the birthplace of Zeus, who of course for the Greeks was the father god, and is a very different kind of father god than our Yahweh. Zeus was known to be a liar, deceptive, and capricious. And the Cretes and the early Greeks would have had no real conception of the person of Jesus. I asked Ron, you know, would the Greeks have heard of Jesus somehow before Paul and this early church arrived on the island? And Ron said, no, he wasn't sure how they would have heard of him, this Jewish man who died like a slave. So we see Paul wrestling with this central question in Titus. How should these early Jesus followers organize their church, their homes, and their lives in such a way to bring credibility to the power of Jesus to change our lives? How would they bring credibility to the good news of Jesus when this culture really had no frame of reference for Jesus? And that is a question that stands the test of time. We can still bring that question into our current moment of history. How do we organize elevation, organize our homes, live our lives in such a way that we bring credibility to the life-changing power of Jesus in our communities? Well, next let's look at what are Paul's instructions to this early church as he tries to answer that question. So Titus 2 um, is addressing specifically how to organize the home. Right? how these Christians should organize their homes. And there's lots of talk of being self-controlled and orderly. Keep in mind that in chapter 1, Paul has referenced the Cretes by one of their own poets who says that Cretes are liars and weak-bellied and gluttonous and lazy. So in chapter 2, Paul's instructions stand out as a juxtaposition to the stereotypes of Cretan culture. In this way, Paul seems to be saying, we're going to live differently than the ways the Cretes are living. So he says, older men are to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled. He says older women are to be reverent, not to slander, not to be addicted to too much wine. Apparently the women had trouble with this, but not the men. They're to be self-controlled, pure, busy at home, kind, and subject to their husbands, which of course rankles our chains. And we go, what? what is Paul? Paul, what are you saying here? Young men are to be self-controlled, show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech, and slaves are to be subject to their masters. Ooh, that's hard to read. They shouldn't talk back to them. They should show that they can be trusted. Okay, so there are these problematic verses mixed in with the larger instructions that really are pointing towards orderliness and self-control, which stands in contrast to the stereotypes of how Cretans lived their lives. Okay, so here's the interesting thing about these instructions. While they definitely stand in contrast to these stereotypes about Cretan culture, there's actually nothing particularly Christian about these instructions in that day and age. That is to say that these ideas about how to live an orderly and self-controlled life already existed in Greek culture. This wouldn't have been new to the early Greek audience who was listening to Paul and his letter. They had, the Greeks had their very own Stoics, who were the philosophically elite, who had been espousing these values of orderliness and self-control as high moral standards. And before the Stoics, there was Aristotle, who wrote his treatise called The Politics. And in Politics, Aristotle lays out rules for husband and wives, slaves and masters, children and parents. So there's nothing here in Titus 2 that Paul is saying that is new or different from what already existed in the understanding and the conceptions of, these, of Greek culture. 
But what was new and what was different about what Paul was saying was while your average Greek would have been familiar with these ideals of orderliness and self-control, they would have said, that's not for us. That's for your philosophically elite. That's for the special people. We all understand it's good to live your life that way, but us average ordinary Greek citizens, we're not expected to live that way. But what Paul is saying is, oh no, not only can you as average people embody and live out these high moral ideals of orderliness and self-control, but you can do it because of the power of Jesus. And that would have made these early Greeks do a double take. They would have said, what? You're telling me that this Jewish man who died like a slave, who isn't elite at all, he embodies these high moral ideals, and even more than that, by his death and his resurrection, he can put power in me to live these high moral ideals as well. That would have been truly radical. And that is something we can fast forward to this present moment in history. What modern day values and ideals already exist in culture that we as followers of Jesus can point to and say, yes, those are kingdom values. And yes, we can embody those ideals, not by our own strength, but by the power of Jesus in our lives. I can tell you for me where I see those values, and you may see them somewhere else in culture, but I see those kingdom values, for example, in the social justice movement and the ways that racial reconciliation asks me as a white woman of privilege to die to my power, to die to my privilege, and to treat my black brothers and sisters and my neighbors um, uh, like I would treat myself to put them before me. That sounds like kingdom values to me. That sounds like a Jesus message to me. And that's like, that also sounds like something I can't do without the power of the Spirit of Jesus in my life. During the first year of my PhD program, I took a series of classes called Radical Rhetorics, African American Rhetorics, and Indigenous Rhetorics, three different classes. And it was a spiritually, psychologically, and emotionally exhausting year. It was nothing but learning about genocide and slavery and genocide and white supremacy and genocide and white supremacy. Um, and while it was, it was enlightening, it was challenging, and yet it was also so full of grief for me as a white woman and follower of Jesus to see the ways the Bible was used over and over again to enable some of the most heinous and depraved human behavior. But there was no place in these classes for me to discuss the spiritual dimensions and the spiritual grief I was feeling about what we were learning. There was no place for me in these classes to repent to lay down my privilege, to, 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 to lament and cry out to God. Um, there was no place in these classes for me to say yes, and Jesus lines up with the best and the brightest of this movement. Jesus empowers us to die to ourselves, to die to our privilege, to die to our power, and put others first, and bring about healing. Um, that's the great gift that Fanish Juma is giving us in these racial uh, reconciliation courses we're doing here at Elevation. Um, 
I know many of you are taking this course right now, and if you have a chance to take the course in the future, I strongly recommend that you do, because under Fannis's leadership, she creates space for the spiritual reality of what we are facing. She points us back to Jesus. She shows us how what we're fighting is the powers and the principalities, not just of the world, but the powers and the principalities of our hearts. And it's nothing short of the death and the resurrection of Jesus that's going to give us the power to overcome this and be healed. So we see Paul here looking at culture and pulling out the high morals and ideals of the culture and showing how Jesus lines up with that. And we can do that today in our present moment. We can look around us in community and culture and we can see where do we see those kingdom values and how can we show the world the way that Jesus lines up with that and empowers us to actually meet those things. Okay, before we end today, we need to deal with these ugly verses though where Paul tells slaves to be subject to masters and women to be subject to their husbands. Because while the high moral ideals of orderliness and self-control may point to kingdom values, the idea that anyone should be subjugated unquestioningly to another human being is decidedly not kingdom values. And how do we know that these aren't kingdom values? Well, here's the second tool we can use when we're dealing with tricky verses. And it's this, we check those verses against the life and teachings of Jesus. We check the verses against the life and teachings of Jesus. Jesus tells us that we can have only one master, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus tells us that we are to take up our cross and follow him. And even Paul says elsewhere in, in his other letters that we're to be slaves to the gospel, slaves to Christ, that we need to put down our submission to other human earthly powers, and we need to make ourselves um, subject to Jesus. If there is anyone who we are to submit our lives to, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. Friends, there can be only one person who is safe to be an unquestioning leader and authority in our life, and that is the person of Jesus. And even he doesn't demand our unquestioning submission. He leaves it up to our choice. He lets us choose to follow him. I'm here to tell you unequivocally that if there is any person or leader in your life who tells you that to be spiritually healthy and to be right with God, you need to be unquestioningly submissive to them or to any other human being, that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. That is strong language I know, but I believe it to the core of my being. No human wields the power over any other human. We are all made equal at the foot of the cross. And the cross and the Son of God hanging on the cross are the only things worthy of our undying submission, not another human being. And if that isn't proof enough for you that these verses have been misread and misused, let's just look at the original context of the meaning to be subject to in these verses. So Catherine, Catherine Bushnell helps illuminate this for us. The verb here is taken is a, is a Greek word that does not exist in the Greek language outside of the New Testament. It is a word that Paul has created, especially for Christian uh, believers, Jesus followers. And the Greek here is hupo, which means next after, and tasso, which means I arrange. So I arrange myself next after. Um, 
as I said, this, ver this word doesn't exist in the Greek outside of the New Testament. This is a very specific word that Paul has created, especially for Jesus' followers, and it doesn't mean to simply obey. If this word hupotasso meant simply to obey, Paul wouldn't have had to create a new word because that word already existed. The true sense of this word describes the Christian grace of yielding one's preferences to another in honor to prefer one another. It's a choosing to harmonize ourselves with one another. And Paul uses this word indiscriminately throughout all his letters for men, women, and slaves. There are other places in his letters to the new church where he tells men to hupotasso one another. And he tells men to hupotasso everyone in the church, which means women and slaves. This word does not mean to obey. And when it's translated in relation to men being subject to other men, so men hupotassoing other men, it isn't treated as to obey. It's treated as to, harmon to willingly harmonize yourself with one another. We have to be aware of these gender biases and not let them cloud our understanding of the Bible. If we're going to translate and interpret this word as a willing and gracious harmonizing of ourselves with one another for men, then we have to do the same thing for slaves and women. When Paul tells slaves and women in Titus 2 to hupotasso their masters and their husbands, he's not telling them to obey outright their masters and husbands. He's telling them to willingly harmonize themselves with the master and the husband. There's agency here. There's a choice. It's not enslavement and it's not being put on them. Okay, we're running out of time here and there's so much more to talk about, but I have to end this sermon at a certain point. So let's recap with this. One. In Titus 2, Paul is pointing out the best and the brightest in culture and showing them how Jesus lines up with that and how Jesus gives them the power to live out those high moral ideals. We can do the same today with our moment of history. Paul is, secondly, Paul is not telling slaves and women to be unquestioningly obedient to human authority. And if anyone tries to pull that out on you, reject it out as a lie from hell. There is no human who merits our unquestioning submission. Only Jesus is worthy of that place in our lives, and even Jesus gives us the choice whether or not to follow him. But that doesn't mean that we don't willingly submit to one another sometimes in the church. Even though no human has the right to, to demand our unquestioning submission, that doesn't mean that sometimes we don't willingly and graciously submit to one another for the sake of unity. So finally, if we're going to understand and translate the interpret and interpret the Greek noun hupotasso, we have to do it the same way for men as we do for women and for slaves in the Bible. If we say that hupotasso means unquestioning obedience for women and slaves, then we have to say it means unquestioning obedience for men too, that they need to unquestioningly obey one another. But we all know that's not what Paul means. We all know that's untenable. Hupotasso means to bring ourselves willingly into harmony with one another of our own free will, as an expression of our love and loyalty to Jesus Christ. And if at any moment bringing ourselves into harmony with one another transgresses Jesus' authority in our lives, say for example, with the issue of slavery, that 
putting people, subjugate, subjugating people one under another, that interferes with the authority of Jesus in the life of the person who's being enslaved and the life of the person who's doing the enslaving. So when we see that happening, we know we have full authority given by the Holy Spirit to put that down and walk away. Because the only being who has the right to our hearts and our lives is our loving Heavenly Father, Yahweh, and the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, who willingly put His life down and died on the cross for us so that He could be raised again. And in that raising, that all of humanity could be redeemed too. All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we cry out to you this morning and ask for your forgiveness for all the ways we have misused your sacred word, for all the ways we have used your holy scripture to cause violence and harm. And we know it grieves your heart and we pray you would break our hearts too so that we could see this the way that you see it. Forgive us for the ways that we have misused and misunderstood your precious word. We pray moving forward that your Holy Spirit would give us tools and show us how to rightly understand the message that you have wrapped up in, in the life of your son, Jesus. And Lord, we invite Jesus into our lives and into our hearts. We invite that redemptive power in to transform us from the inside out. And Lord, we tell you today that we want no other masters but you, Jesus. We want to submit our lives and our heart and our church to you. We want to be your church, Jesus. We want to follow you. And we pray, Jesus, that as we live out our lives in this current moment in history, that we would bring credibility to who you are, that we would testify that our lives would be a testimony to the wonderful, radical love of God and the person of you, Jesus and the power that has to transform us from the inside out. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Okay, I release us now into our neighborhood, our neighbors groups. There's so much to talk here. There's so much more I couldn't get into in, in these scriptures, but um, we have questions we can start to wrestle through and piece through together as a community. Many blessings to you, and I look forward to being able to see you all in person soon.